0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is studio drummer Denny Sywell. But first of all, I get a lot of questions about copyright, and here's the latest on copyright in 2019. First of all, one thing that you should know is any time that you commit an idea to a fixed medium. In other words, you put it on tape, you put it on a CD, you put it on a hard drive, you put it on a streaming service it becomes copyrighted. Yes, automatically, it's copyrighted. Even if you put it on a page, for instance, you write the music out, that's still considered copyrighted. So the easiest thing to get a quick copyright is to put a song up on YouTube, put it up on SoundCloud, and make it private. But the thing about it is, as soon as you put it up there, even if it's private, it's timestamped with the date and that's really what you need. Now there's a myth about something called the poor man's copyright. So the whole idea is if you send yourself a CD or a tape or a thumb drive with the song on it via certified mail then that's dated and that becomes copyrighted. The problem is this doesn't hold up in court so don't even think about doing that anymore because it's not valid. What you could do is go online and register your copyright at copyright.gov and what you'll do is you'll go to register new claims and fill out either form pa for public performance or sr for sound recording and you could either send it in via us mail which is what we had to do for the longest time or you could submit it online now there's a big difference here if you send it in via mail it costs you more, it costs $85. If you do it online, it only costs 35 And people used to not want to do this because you had to basically do a form per song. So if you have five songs, it's five times 35. If you have 10, it's 350 bucks. That becomes a lot of dough. Now they've changed it. So you can put all of your songs on one form. There's no limits to how many you can put on. But here again comes another problem. If you're going to mail in your form, the average time for processing is 13 months, and it can be as long as 26 months. If you do it online, it's anywhere from 2 to 10 months with the average around 6, so it's still a long time before it becomes officially registered. If you want the ultimate protection on your song, this is what you do. You register it with the Copyright Office by going to copyright.gov, but that being said, the moment that the song moves from your head to some sort of fixed medium, it becomes copyrighted. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to the questions at com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now again, I've been responding to some questions lately about vocal tuning. I don't think a lot of people today understand what we went through in the old days to tune vocals. So, let me give you a little bit about vocal tuning history. Well, The way we used to get a perfect vocal take, and it's still done that way today, is the vocalist goes and punches in every line until you get it perfect. And that's sort of tedious. In the old days, especially when you were punching in on tape, if you got the punch wrong, that meant that you might have to do two lines instead of one. And maybe it wasn't as good the second time around. So that became a very, very tedious situation for everybody involved. As a result. Everyone went to comping instead, and that's where a vocalist will sing the song anywhere between two and ten times or maybe even more. And then later, all of those are comped together onto one track. So all the best performances or bits of performances are then mixed onto one single track. Now, again, that's a whole lot easier than it used to be. But that being said, it's still a tedious process, and it's something that engineers and producers kind of dread because it's four or five hours of your life putting something like that together, and the more tracks you have, the longer it takes. Now, again, that's considering that you have a vocalist that has enough time to do a number of tracks, and the fact that you do have the room for a number of tracks, and back in the old days when we were just on 16 and 24-track tape machines, those tracks were limited so sometimes what would happen is the vocalist would leave and maybe you couldn't get that vocalist back so you had to tune the vocals up. Okay, so how do we do it? Well, at first what we did was we used speed on a tape machine. So what you do is either on the master machine or on an outboard 2-track, You would vary the speed of the tape machine so you got that piece tuned just right. You bounce it over the two track and you bounce it back. And again, very, very tedious to do this because you had to get it just right, especially on the punches when you brought it back in. This would take forever. And again, the big problem here is the fact that you couldn't really tune it up or down too much because you would speed up or slow down the take, which would change everything. So that was kind of a drag. Then, in 1975, the Eventide Harmonizer was introduced. And this allowed us to tune things up digitally instead of using the varispeed on the tape machine. So digitally, again, we had the same problems. We'd have to bounce it onto a two-track, even though it was a little bit easier to do because we didn't have to vary the speed of anything. So here we are with the same problem where if you tuned it higher or lower, and the higher and lower you tuned it, the faster or slower it got. So it didn't exactly fit in the song. Obviously, we're fine-tuning these things. We can't do a lot of really wide variation. Things got a little bit easier with the introduction of something called the Publisson Infernal Machine, which was a French harmonizer that had some sampling in it. So now it allows you to sample that little piece of vocal, tune it up, and then it was easier to actually put it back, eliminated the need for a tape machine. The problem with the poublison was it was really finicky and they broke down a lot. And then you usually had to send it back to France in order to get it fixed, which could take forever. So when real samplers came in, that really changed everything, because now we could go into the sampler. The Akai S1000 was a big one that everybody used for the longest time, and you can tune things up there, and it was easier to lay it back on the tape at that point. In 1997, things got a lot easier with the introduction of Auto-Tune. And now we had a piece of software that could actually tune things up for us as a plugin as well. So this made life a whole lot easier. Again, we have the problem where you can't really do extreme tuning or else it would sound kind of funny you get a lot of artifacts so you could tell there was something happening so you couldn't really do that and that's gotten better over the years so now we have wide wide variations of doing some tuning here or retuning and things seem to work a lot better also now we have auto tune or auto tune like software applications that are built right into digital audio workstations just about every workstation now has something like this and of course there's Celimony, which is a big competitor to auto tune the whole idea now though is if you want to tune something up you can do it in such a way where now you don't have to worry about time because you have time stretch. So if you tune something higher it doesn't get faster and it fits exactly in the pocket. So things are so much easier today than they were you know, way back when. And you can imagine how tedious it was when we were back in the tape days where it would take a couple of days for you to do this, where today, if you put Auto-Tune or Ceremony in the automatic mode, it will do it automatically for you. None of us do it that way. To be honest with you, comping is still the way we go, where you'll do probably a minimum of three tracks, three takes, and as many as 24, and then you'll comp the best vocal from there, and only in extreme cases will you bring an Auto-Tune or Ceremony or something like that. Generally speaking, I find that I only use it once or twice a vocal track, if that. I think the most I ever used it was on an acoustic bass that was way out of tune, and I got something into mix, obviously couldn't get the bass player back to redo it, so the only way to do it was to basically tune the whole track, and that was manually done. It took a long, long time, but it wound up being a perfectly tuned bass track, and something that you just can't tell a difference. So... We live in a different world. Things like tuning vocals, which are taken for granted because it's so easy today, was once a huge chore. My guest today is Denny Sywell, who went from being one of the top session drummers in New York City to becoming a founding member of Paul McCartney's post-Beatles band, Wings. Besides McCartney, Denny has worked with artists like Billy Joel, Joe Cocker, James Brown, and Denise Williams. He's played on scores for films like Waterworld, Grease 2, and Vertical Limit, and his drumming has been used on TV shows like Happy Days and Knotts Landing. In the interview, we talked about getting started in New York, the famous first university tour in England with Paul McCartney, leaving the biggest band in the world, making a painful transition to the Los Angeles studio scene, working on the first Billy Joel record, and much more. Denny and I spoke via Skype, from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to you getting into the business. You're from Lehigh in Pennsylvania. I'm from Pottsville.
1: Oh, wow. Pink is from Pottsville, isn't she?
0: No, Pottstown, I think.
1: Pottstown.
0: Yeah, yeah. A little bit of a difference.
1: Wait a second. I had a buddy from Pottsville, and he was in the Navy School of Music with me, and sometimes my parents used to pick us up and drop him off on the way home. Yeah.
0: Okay. That makes sense. The fact of the matter is, we're both from small towns in Pennsylvania, and it's not very easy to get out from those, especially if uh, you're a musician. So what's your story? How did you do it?
1: Well, I got out. Well, I spent an extra year in the 11th grade because I wanted to get out so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But when uh, I was getting drafted for Vietnam, I'm a little older than you, (laughs) Yeah. so uh, I graduated in... 60, I was supposed to graduate in 61, I graduated in 62. They were about to snag me for Vietnam and I've been trying to get into Curtis Institute of Music, a couple other music schools. My grades were so bad though. And then the war happened and the draft happened and I heard about the Navy School of Music. So uh, I applied for an audition down in Washington, D.C., went down and I got in. And uh, when I joined the Navy it was guaranteed <laughs> the only rank in the service that's guaranteed that you don't do anything except play music. Wow so I had a, a, a great time at the school it was wonderful. Uh, there were some great players in the school. Uh, I did really well at the school They sent me to South America in a cream cream of the crop band to promote goodwill for the United States a big band and it would they would augment it with another maybe eight people and so we had a, like a real tiny marching band to play for events like this uh, royalty events and stuff like that but yeah it was pretty good actually
0: i didn't know that there was a school of music um, a navy school of music see i just thought that you had to be good enough to get in and then they put you in a band
1: no no you have to pass an audition which i passed with flying colors because of my prior training um uh, and uh from that, I, I got to meet a lot of people and, and play with a lot of big band music, a lot of concert ensemble music with 60-piece concert ensembles and all kinds of stuff. So it was just a, a step up in my training. And it was it was really good, actually. My last position, I went from this band in South America back to the school, and they sent me to Chicago for a year. Then they sent me to the south of France. <laughs> <laughs> french riviera the admiral of the sixth fleet had a band that used to play when dignitaries came aboard and, and everything and all we did was uh when we were at sea we did played cards and you know had a rehearsal in the band room and we had no duties or anything like that and uh when we were in port which is nice france uh, we had four days off at a time because it was our home port and uh we had apartments. I was playing jazz in the jazz clubs at night. I met my wife there. Wow. Yeah. And Jan- November 26th, a couple of days from now, we're going to be married 52 years.
0: That's a long time to stay in one person. Wow. Yeah, no rules, yeah. Okay. So then when you left the Navy, did you go back to Lehighton?
1: Uh, yeah, I went there because my wife needed three months or so to get her paperwork together to bring her over. We weren't married yet, but we were engaged. So we put our papers to work. I worked in a factory in my hometown, ladling molten metal around, just and then playing on a gig here and there. But uh, there wasn't much music in Lehigh in Pennsylvania, as you can imagine. And when uh, when she arrived, and got married, and um, I went to work in an organ store in Allentown, a place called Chirelli Brothers.
0: I remember it. I bought my B three from there.
1: Okay. How <laughs> can yeah? i didn't deliver it <laughs> the hard part was anything you sold you had to deliver oh okay <laughs> and i delivered a spinet piano up the back steps of a building three flights by myself with a piano thing you know the handles and yeah. all that yeah oh my god uh, that's probably where i hurt my back the first time <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, then, then i got i went into the city i had an uncle that was a union rep and he told me about the floor, the dance floor at Roseland ballroom was where the musicians all got together. I believe it was Wednesday afternoon and they would procure gigs for the weekend and and bar mitzvahs and club dates, uh, the mountains. And I, I, the first gig I got was at the, in the mountains actually at a place called Brown's hotel with the Leo stone orchestra.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I went up there and while I was up there, it was a full week, uh, five, six nights a week, I guess it was. Uh, I think we actually stayed there. I, I don't remember. It, but anyway, through that, I heard about another gig in the Poconos rather than the Catskills, a little closer to home. And I, and I, I got that gig at Tameran, where I started meeting these to augment the band on the weekends and have big acts come through. And Zoot Sims and Jerry Dodgen and and Marvin Stamm and all of the heavy cats used to come up uh, on the weekends to augment a seven-piece band during the week. Bob Newman was a band leader. It's kind of a famous band. and I met Dave Frischberg up there, and while uh, one night Dave said, hey, the drummer at the half note is leaving town, Mousy Alexander, with Alcone and Zoot Sims. So he said, go down and tell Zoot you're a friend of mine. See if you can sit in, I'll bet you you, sc- you score the gig." So I go down and I say, Hey Zoot, I'm a friend of Dave Frischberg. He told me to come down and say hello, and maybe you'd let me play a tune or two with you. And Zoot says, Oh, I'm a friend of Dave. Say, what do you play? I said, I'm a drummer. Says, I hate drummers. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my indoctrination. I uh, played and he offered me the gig that night. And then I moved into the city and we set up shop, and I was doing six nights a week, six sets a night at the half note for almost no money. I mean, if you had a few drinks and a few uh, sub sandwiches or something, uh, you go home with 70 bucks at the end of the week, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, only, it only paid 100. But through that, the musical community used to come down on Sunday nights, and they see, who's the new kid in town? Who's playing with the Alan too? You know? And then I started getting calls for the recording sessions, jingles, records, and pretty soon I'm doing five dates a day. <laughs> wow. And that's how that started. Then McCartney came to town and picked me out of the herd. He auditioned 10 or 12 guys that were doing all of the, 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 the top tier work. you know, and, um, and they were all in for that audition. Because we didn't know it was an audition. We were told it was a demo. Purdy and uh, Bill Luarni and Richie Zito and uh, Ronnie Zito and, and all of these guys came to work uh, to the audition and said that they didn't of course <laughs> I, uh, buy my records you know but anyway it turned out to be great fun and uh, I did the record with Paul and uh you play with one beetle and you can kiss your jazz career goodbye yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right right that kind of brands you for life I think <laughs> Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. You were right at the beginning of Wings, and you were part of the university tour, right? The initial tour? Mm-hmm. The way I heard it was, everybody just packed up in a van and drove around looking for gigs, which seems inconceivable to me, but did it happen that way?
1: Exactly. Paul huh. talk, talked about it like a week before. He said, uh, you know, because we've been rehearsing, we replaced, oh, not replaced, we added guitar player Henry McCulloch to the band. The first record wildlife which is coming out december 7th the reissue they're reissuing wildlife and red rose speedway but in the beginning it was just danny and me paul and linda and that was it we made wildlife just the four of us it was the initial band and then we realized well we want to take this out and promote the record so we're going to need a lead guitar player and, and the roadies ian horn and trevor jones we had two guys uh, they recommended uh henry mcculloch who played with joe cocker in the grease band at the time he played he was an irish um, folklore musician i mean he was like the Jimi hendrix of ireland so they brought him in and uh he uh, you know he played a couple tunes with us at this great rehearsal space that we had and paul and i looked at each other we all looked at each other and said yeah he's the guy so henry joined the band and then um, It was shortly after that, Paul said, well, I want to get out and play. So before you knew it, he said, "Uh, come on, a couple of days from now, come on up to the house, pack a bag. We're just going to go out and stop at universities and play. We didn't have enough material to play. We used to have to repeat, give Ireland back to the Irish. (laughs) 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 did that twice in the set, beginning and the end. And we did a couple of the Beatles things like Long Tall Sally, you know the way they did it. Yeah, over Kentucky, a couple of standards in amongst our material, and it was uh, it was just great fun. We got into a twelve passenger van, Paul drove, wives, kids, dogs, everything, and uh, we had an equipment truck with basic, bare minimum gear, just a few mics and very, you know, it was really a joke what we went out with. And uh, we'd stop at a university and said, Is there a place where we can uh, put on a little concert for the kids? And usually they'd say, Well, you know, not really. Uh, kids are having finals and all of this. And the roadies would say, Well, we got Paul and Cardi out there in the band. They go, Yeah, right. Yeah. So he dragged them out, and Paul goes, Hey, how are you? <laughs> said, Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> so uh, we did 10 or 11 of those shows, and we were just getting our feet wet. You know, we rehearsed up, and it was it was great fun. At the end of the night, we would take the kid with the box of money, and he'd come in the van with us, and we'd break the box of money up like a one for you, one for you, one for you. We pass out pound notes, and um, then we'd uh, we'd find a hotel while the roadies were setting up the gear, and it was usually a, a dump, you know, tiny little hotel. We'd all Get into one of the rooms afterwards to to play and sing and hang out and stuff. And if if we were all in the room together, it was so small you couldn't close a door. <laughs> so <laughs> the dogs would run around the hallway and stuff. And it was just so quaint and so intimate. And we became a family in that time and period. We did 10, 11 of those. And then the press kind of caught on. They were watching out for us. But we dodged the press those first 10 or 11 gigs, which is killer because we weren't being referred to as, okay, this is Paul's new band, uh, you know. Yeah. So it was really cool in that regard and it was great fun.
0: It almost sounds like being in a band in the height in Pennsylvania <laughs> at the time.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, when we were doing Ram, Paul had the idea. He said, you know, I'd like to get put together a little band and go down to South America, down to Brazil. And get horse-drawn carriages, just go from town to town and do little shows. He was serious, so this was just a step up from that. At least it was. Would have to shovel horse shit half the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Then moving on a little bit, I don't want to spend too much time on McCartney, but
1: everybody knows that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, but again, right at the end, then when you left Wings, they were going to. uh, Lagos. Lagos, right. And the way I understood it was, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, that everybody was really paranoid about going there, but Paul didn't get the message about how dangerous it was?
1: That wasn't it at all. What happened was, we rehearsed a band on the run up in uh, Scotland. Paul had a farm, two farms, uh, one that they lived in, and over the hill from it was a a larger old beat-up farm, but they had a nice barn and we rehearsed in there. And I had my own farm. We rented a farm up there in Scotland. And the guys would stay wherever, you know, Henry and Danny. Were, they, they were like gypsies. They would stay anywhere. Abandoned farmhouses and stuff without electricity. But we got the record together up there. And, and Henry was pushed into a corner one day. Paul wanted him to play an exact part over and over again. Uh, when he, Every time we played that song, he wanted to hear these specific... Like lines in it, and Henry's a very organic play. He wasn't a, a very organic player, and they had a big battle. And uh, Henry said, well, "You," and he left. And that was the end of that. So when Henry left the band, for the next two weeks, this is a two three weeks before we were scheduled to go to Lagos. I, I tried to convince Paul that uh, you know we should really. See if we could postpone it for a month. Break in a new guitar player because we had become a band. Live, we were good. And uh, Paul said, "Nah, I don't want to do that. We'll just go down and and do overdubs on everything, uh, like we did on Ram." I said, "Geez, we worked so hard to bring it to this place." So that troubled me. And there was some financial stuff that I don't like getting into, but. We were not being taken care of due to the Beatles uh, lawsuit where Paul sued the other three Beatles to keep them from signing with Alan Klein. There was a court receivership on the money. The money was extremely tight. It was hard. Living in one of the biggest bands of the 70s, if not the biggest, they say, and having nothing to show for it. I mean, I lived very uh, meagerly. We did, my wife and I. We had a basement apartment, a rented, furnished apartment uh, that we paid for. You know, I had to go to the bank to borrow money to buy a used Mercedes. A lot of things, but the, the money was starting to trouble everybody because we were supposed to be shareholders of this band. That was the original agreement. And when that didn't happen, after a while, it wears on you. And then uh, the night that we were supposed to leave for Lagos, I heard another... Danny Lane came back last minute from Scotland. And and I heard another bad piece of information about how we were being treated, even though we were a family unit. Uh, but we were on call on, at the mercy of Paul and Linda. Whenever they wanted to do something, they'd say, jump, and we say, how I? And after a while, it started to, it was a one-way deal. It wasn't two ways. That night, I, I, I regret it to this day that I didn't sit down and talk to paul about it we had no physical agreement on paper no contract no nothing it was all done on on a hippie handshake and trust and uh it, it had run out and i just i chose to leave at that point in time and i would have looked forward to going to africa although they did have a bad time down there they got robbed on the way home from the studio and ginger baker's crew and the and the Black Mafia fell around, some cootie and all that. They had some real serious problems while they were there. But eh.
0: Yeah. All right. So after that, then how did you get to Los Angeles?
1: When we left, uh, you know, I sat down with my wife and said, I don't want to go back to New York. The grind was too heavy. It was uh, a long day, six days a week usually. And I love New York. I love the musical community there. But I said, let's go to California because I wanted to play in the big orchestras that do the movie soundtracks i have that background and i thought let me let me get out there they don't know who i am this will be easy transition and we got out here and it wasn't an easy transition they thought i was an english rock and roll drummer Hmm. so i'd get a few calls for some records play with some of the good cats you know lee Square, different david foster and different different cats on the scene Uh, I I did some recording when I first got out here, but it wasn't, it wasn't, the doors weren't wide open to the studio world that I thought it was going to be. And then the strike in the 80s came along, the drum box and all of that stuff came along and it it started getting harder and harder to get work. So I go out and I tour a little bit with Rick Danko. We had a band for quite a couple of years, maybe more than a couple of years I played with Rick off and on. I loved Rick. He was he was an amazing musician, and we had a band once with Gary Busey, Paul Butterfield, and Rick Danko. Oh my God! If you live, if you live through one of those stores, and we did a few of those, and uh, it was great fun, though.
0: I know that you're still doing sessions, and you're still doing film and television sessions.
1: I have backed backed away from that. I worked with a few composers that would always ask for me. But it's become so political out here in L.A. uh, to get on those 110 piece orchestra sessions uh, for a blockbuster movie. These days, it's so political that the composer almost has to ask for you to be on the date, you know. And James Newton Howard was my um, my guy there. We were we were great friends. He knew the musician that I was and he would tell the contractors to make sure that I was in the orchestra. He needed time, for example, on the bass drum. Mm-hmm. There'd be seven, eight guys in the percussion section, and you work for four to seven days on a on a big movie. You know, you have to be able to read uh, perfectly. You don't make any mistakes in that situation. And uh, I did a, one of the big ones. I did was with uh, James was Waterworld. Mm-hmm. Waterworld. Uh, Dinosaurs, Atlantis, uh, Perfect Murder. I, I did a whole bunch of movies with him. And I, I was getting into the scene, although other composers were not, maybe one or twice, once or twice another composer called me for some sessions, but it, it was hard to become part of that inner circle. So I kind of, I was doing a lot of TV shows. We do five TV shows a year on average. And then that all changed when they started doing it out of a garage. And it was one guy and a synthesizer and a, computer uh i saw the writing on the wall and i said geez what am i gonna do and uh at that point a lot of changes happened in my life too where i, I had a tough time with with leaving mccartney and the breakup and and all of that and we were happy uh my wife and i were happy together but i wasn't fulfilling my musical endeavors anymore and it got pretty nasty and I decided to put all my bad habits behind me and start living a different way of life and what have you. And things started to come to fruition. And then I, I decided to start giving it away. This was around 1991 or so. I, I thought, let me, let me start. I don't know. I've worked at every great producer on the planet. I've seen genius at work with songwriting and studio techniques and all of this. I would to pass this on, so I started teaching, just for the hell of it. Taught here at home, and then a little more gigs would come in, be, just because you're doing something nice, you know. And um, then I was asked to write a book. Alfred Publishing asked me to write a drum book, a kind of a legacy item. And I said, yeah, okay. And, um, it's called What Not to Play. <laughs> I love it. And it was great fun. Uh, it could have been done very quickly, but all the licensing for the, the tunes on the DVD took forever, and it was a nightmare. I'll never do it again. I must say there's absolutely no money in it, and, uh, but you don't do things for money anyway. But I'm really proud that I have that legacy item out there for the public. You know, I'm, I'm very happy with the book, and, and Alfred really did their, oh, did a beautiful job on getting it out there. But then I started missing playing jazz. And every once in a while, back in uh, 30 years ago, I worked with a guy named Mike Garson, this beautiful piano player. Oh, yeah. And Mike's a New Yorker like me. And when I was in London with Paul, he was in London with David Bowie. Yeah, We didn't know each other in New York. We didn't know each other in London. He was a musical director for Bowie. But some 30 years ago or so, uh, we're both in L.A., and he calls me up and says, Hey, you want to play some jazz? And I said, Yeah. So Jamie Font was the bass player he was working with at the time. And we had a little jazz trio 30 years ago. And that just wet my whistle because he would go into his McCoy Tyner bag. I could go into my Elvin Jones bag. And it was just such great fun. You know, and here and there, my best friend in life was a bass player named Chuck Monaco. Mm. Uh, we were the same age, married to the same women for the same amount of time, and we were in a band together years ago with Roger Calloway, Tom Scott, and Joe Beck as well. Uh, that was our first time in California in 1968. We were only here for three or four months, but you know Chuck and I really became very close, and he was the one that told the studio contractors that they needed me on their list. And um, so it was. Uh, it was great. And now I'm playing with Chuck, with Dave Mackay. We did some concerts together. And Victor Feldman called me, and I, I did a bunch of concerts with Victor Feldman with John Patitucci on bass. Mm. And it was just amazing. And my and kind of my my wheels are turning again. I'm getting back into uh, creative uh, drumming and and playing more jazz, and making making that a priority in my life. Then some years passed by and uh, I got a, a call from a buddy of mine that opened up a restaurant. He said, yeah, I can bring jazz in on a Wednesday night. They can get some guys who just come by and play. And I said, yeah, sure. So I'd call some of my favorite guys that I did some sessions with and what have you. You want to just, uh, just hang out and have some fun? They said, yeah, sure, man. So I tried different combinations. And one night I called John Cubini, who I'd met in the studio. And also, John and I played together in a quartet with Bob Burrow, Schoolhouse Rocks. Oh, sure. Yeah. I played on the original stuff. Bob was from the Poconos. That's when I met him in 67. Wow. So I played on some, a lot of the original Schoolhouse Rock music, and he redid that some years later. He had a quartet with John Codini, uh, Jim Hewitt on bass and then oh we played the troubadour and he actually had jack sheldon come in and sing i'm just a bill and the songs he he sang on too That's awesome. always, but we do a jazz set then we do the schoolhouse rock music you know so so i called john Cudini from knowing him from that those days and then i'd heard i always wanted to play with an organ and i heard about joe bag he was the young hot guy on the scene and I called Joe and asked him if he'd bring his portable organ over and do a night with John and I. And he said, love to. And so he showed up, and we we all knew the same tunes. Uh, it was so magical that first night. I wish I would have had a little tape recorder running because it was just a breath of fresh air. And I said, wow. So we did it again a couple of times. And then I said, you know what? Will you guys... You want to make a record? Let's just come over to my house, my Right now, this studio that I'm in, this, this tiny little studio. You can you can kind of see it here, but oh yeah, uh, it's 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 the second bedroom. The engineer sat at the desk. The organ was here. The drums were there, and the guitar was back in that corner. And the engineer wore it headphones and uh, was sh- strung up a couple of microphones and do some directs uh, into the into uh, the. Forget what you call that interface. Yeah. And uh, recorded Reckless Abandon, our first record. I, was, I think it was 2012, six or seven years ago, 2011 or 2012. And it was done, guys would come over for three hours at a time. You know, I'd give them a couple of bucks and uh, we'd do three or four tracks. And uh, pretty soon we had 11 tracks, 12 tracks, whatever it was. And uh, my engineer would take it home and work on it, and I'd do some rough mixes and see if we... We didn't add anything to it. Most of them were first or second takes. These guys were red hot. We'd just go through it, make sure that we had all the right changes and who plays how many here, how many there. Yeah. Put the record together. I did everything myself. Got licensing, artwork through a buddy of mine that worked at the studios, and, uh, you know, put it out My have a manufactured and put it out myself. Just sold them at my... Uh, fest events when I'd appear at a Beatle show, and uh, and over my website, it was okay. So, but over the years then we stayed together, and every chance we got to play, whether it was Catalinas or one of the clubs here in town, you know, we would if everybody was free, which was the big problem, we would get together and play. Then uh, last year, this guy Bruce Quarto from Quarto Valley Records, it's a new label here in town. Uh, he just has a small label with five artists, and he wanted to open up a label that treated the artist really fairly. So he gave me the budget for a record. Uh, we got together here at the house and went through a bunch of tunes that we might do for the new album. And uh, I called in a lot of favors and uh, went over to NRG to record. We were in there three days max, more like two and a half. <laughs> Yeah. and record this new album which we titled um, Boomerang and then graciously Al Schmidt said yes to mixing the record wow. and we were saying you just did a, a an interview with Al yeah he's brilliant I just love that man so dear and he lost uh, he didn't lose his home but uh, uh, you know we invited him they were they were uh, evacuated for a while we yeah. invited him to here and stuff but um, yeah, Al did such a beautiful job of, of putting it all together. And the record came out September seventh. It's doing extremely well in Europe, especially, and the United States just reordered too. The people that that ship them stuff out, they just made a reorder, which gives me a lot of hope that people are still buying music. And it's out in CD and LP, which is really nice. Yeah, the LP is gorgeous. Uh, The artwork is fantastic. Do I have one around here so I can
0: show you? Is this it? No. Uh, They're they're off. Hey, Nick. It's all right. I I can get one, and I want to because I love organ trios.
1: Yeah, and it's not your typical organ trio. We do a lot. We do half and half, six originals and six covers, Uh but the covers are or uh, very obscure, like Brazilian tunes, like Curumim, uh, Cesar Camargo Mariano's wrote that, or we do uh, uh, April Child, uh, which is a maracatu beat. I have never, I know a lot about Brazilian music. I never heard of a maracatu. So uh, that's really interesting. When you hear that track, April Child, you can hear it. It's all on the streaming services. You can hear it right now, but uh, there was a lot of really interesting music on this record, and I'm very proud of it. And the first record had five McCartney songs. John Cudini said, well, listen, you're best known for your work with Paul, even though you're a jazz ball. I said, why don't we do a couple of McCartney songs and re rearrange them for jazz? And I said, yeah, okay. So we did, and I liked it. So we had five of them on the first record. So on the new record, Boomerang, I I, I wanted to pay tribute to Paul, but not have a whole bunch of material of his on it. So I thought, why not do the track that I'm best known for, which is Live and Let Die. Yeah. So when you think about it though, so Live and Let boom, 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 boom. We just took it into that jazz swing shuffle kind of a groove. And it fit fit perfectly. We did every bit of the arrangement from the original recording apart from the reggae bit and the ballad. We didn't have to do that. And it left a nice clean palette for the guys to blow on. And it was, uh, musically, it was very interesting as well. So, Live and Let Die is turning out to be one of the big hits from this thing.
0: (laughs) Very cool. Well, I can't wait to hear it then.
1: Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. It's very accessible music for for a, a music fan. You don't have to have a degree in jazz to understand what's going on here it's it's pretty it's energetic powerful in your face so it's kind of it's a, a fun record to listen to
0: oh i can't wait all right last question danny what is the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you uh
1: i wish i wish when when I finished Ram, Michael Lang gave me a project. It was my first, it would have been my first project to produce. He sent me a tape of a new artist he was signing. Michael Lang from Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Famous records and all that. And anyway, he sent me a tape of this artist you he, he wanted he was interested in. He said, If you like this guy, I'm gonna put in the studio and I'll let you produce a record with him. I said, Great, send it to me. I heard it, it was brilliant. I said, Yes, let's go. Turned out to be Billy Joel. It was Cold Spring Harbor. So we booked a studio. I got all my buddies together. And we went in and we started tracking. And we were in four or five, maybe four tracks into the record. And McCartney called me at this point. He said, I need you back in London. And I said, ooh, I just started this great project. And now, not having business chops, I just... I'd left if I had no agreement, a production agreement, or anything with uh, Billy Joel. Had I had some business chops, then I'd be a lot richer. <laughs> I'm by I'm, no means rich, but I, I would have gone through life a lot easier yeah. had I anything about business. So, my advice is. Uh, Today, to be a musician, a successful musician, you have to know a lot about your craft. But you also have to know about how the system works. And I, I have young students that went to uh, to college and took business course, business of music courses. And so you can either learn the hard way like I did and miss out on a, on a couple of really big things that may drop into your lap. Or you can know about it, and when you get the opportunity, be there for it. You
0: can find out more about Denny at dennysywell.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownerscircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify. At Osinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.